Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, Larry Hughes is going to pop out and get the ball. Jordan's going to rub his man off of Leitner and then cut down the center and gets a nice pass from Larry Hughes. All right, everybody, welcome into the Believe in Wizards podcast. Uh, we'll be getting to an interview with the Athletics' Sam Vassini here in a couple minutes, but we wanted to start out today and, and talk about just uh, sort of what's been going on, uh, obviously, in the world right now, but specifically to, to how the NBA players are kind of stepping up and, and using their platform to respond to that and, and sort of use their platform in the right way. So, so, Larry, I think you can articulate this a lot better than I can, so, so take it away. I think it, it is important to use the attention from a professional pro- profile, from a national profile, from players, individuals, uh, men, women that we see, and this is including the WNBA as well, people that we see on a national level uh, that in all understanding that not doing any harm, uh, they're good people in their community, uh, they're good uh, law-abiding citizens, because that's the perception when you see someone on uh, television and you understand uh, the fanfare and the things that are going on around them. And I think it's important that we understand that the players are trying to make a stand for those that are not able to be heard, uh, that don't have the national profile uh, that these players have. Uh, and it's important that, you know, we continue to, to, to shine light on, you know, the situations that go on, the social injustice that go on, the racism uh, that's going on, and the ability to use a bubble, uh, the ability to use the camera, I think it's very important. Uh, will I say, or can I sit here and say uh, that the players have all the answers? I'm sure that they don't, but I'm sure that they have enough understanding to say things need to change and it stops now. And I think that the only thing that they had in their toolbox, uh, especially speaking about yesterday, was to support another movement by not going out to play a basketball game. So I support the players you know, a thousand percent and understand that even though a lot of our players are getting, you know, their names attached to certain initiatives or certain, you know, hoorah moments of, of being special, I don't think that the players are doing it to be special. I think that they're doing it to shine light and to help those that, um, like I said, that they don't have the national platform uh, that these guys have. Yeah, you obviously have the idiots out there that you're probably sort of never going to be able to make get it. And, and, and that's frustrating in and of itself. But the folks that are sort of ignorant to certain things are, you know, they're well-intentioned, but maybe don't get it. And you hear a lot of, well, what does this really accomplish? They should just play basketball. And I think that's, that's so frustrating because I'll say you guys are, are, are qualified to do this because you are leaders in your community. I, I, you know, there's so many examples like people like John Wall, Brad Beal, that they give back more, more than the average person. So if they don't deserve a voice, I don't understand who does. And I think them doing this is more than most 
elected officials have done. I mean, realistically, so why not? I mean, shut up and dribble is, is literally the most infuriating couple of words I think I've ever heard in my life. I, I think players are stepping up, you know, to the challenge. And I think players have been stepping up to the challenge. Uh, when you talk about things that happen in our country, whether it be hurricane relief, whether it be crazy, you know, um, forest fire relief, all these things that, that NBA players are always at the, the forefront of making a commitment, whether it be with their time or whether it be a financial commitment, these players are doing that. Most times these players are doing it before their billion dollar owners are doing it because we understand what it means to be underserved and in a lot, in a lot of cases, you know, in a poverty situation. So when we see things or things happen, it really hits home because that could have been us. That is a number of our relatives that are in uh, these situations because we can't help everyone. We can't get everyone out. So you always see the NBA players stepping up first because we realize that at any given time, we could be in that situation. We could be in that position to need help. And for us, you know, it's really a fine line between making it and not making it. There's a lot of luck that goes into becoming an NBA player, making a life for ourselves, uh, making money that we need to invest and be very smart with because the basketball life is very short. But there's a fine line of getting out of the situations that we're in. And when you get to situations and times, you know, moments in time where you can step up and you can voice your concerns and you can help someone out, for us, it's very important. For us, it's very important because essentially it could have been us. You know, it, it could have been us. And I applaud these guys for, you know, just stepping out of the box again and willing to take on whatever grief that comes about and just taking on the challenge. And I, But I will say that there are a number of fans and a number of people that support players, the jersey sales, the shoe sales, the ticket sales, um, when they come into the community and do certain giveaways or they do autograph signings. There's people that support that because maybe they're not ruffling any feathers. Maybe they're giving something to you. But I would encourage those same people that are cheering and buying and supporting to support in a manner where if a player has an issue that's not a mainstream, it's not mainstream, that we get some of that support from fans as well. Because if you take a look at the comments, uh, whether it be on social media, you know, just to look at the comments on any of these platforms, essentially they're telling us the real deal. And these are faceless people. These are faceless information or paragraphs to, to some degree. But at the same time, if the players are going out there in that jersey and going out to score 30, that same person that's in that comment, they're applauding that person. But when we're talking about injustice and we're talking about equality and we're talking about having black skin and, and how we feel about having black skin and what that brings on, we need that same support, right? We don't need the fact of you guys are able to go out and play. So it's not a big deal. So that's kind of a ramble of, of thoughts and, and things that have gone on um, just over the last few days. 
But for those that are questioning what the players are doing and questioning the stance, I would encourage them to take a look at some of the comments that are under a lot of these players' profiles and things that they're they're promoting. And just take a look at the, the, the negativity and the hate that's really going on behind you know, the keyboards. I think that's the real benefit of sports is that it brings people with different backgrounds together. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a white kid from a mostly white neighborhood. So, so most of my early interactions in life with people of different skin colors is from, from sports. And, and if you don't have that, I don't know how you learn about other people. And if you don't learn about other people, it, it's hard to be empathetic. And I think that's the biggest thing missing kind of across the board is just nobody is willing to put anybody you know, put themselves in anybody else's shoes. And, and like you said, the comments, it's, that was a gut punch yesterday, just seeing some of that stuff. And, and I don't have to live that, you know, so it, it's just, um, it's a, it's a wake up call, or at least a reminder of, of what other people have to go through. So, you know, they will start playing again this weekend. What do you, what do you think comes out of this as sort of, you know, next steps or, or things we'll see as sort of a result of, of them walking out? I think that's fine. I think that they've put everyone on notice that they are going to stop at the drop of a hat if they're uncomfortable. And for anyone in America that has any sort of rights, just because it's an NBA game, you should still have the right, if you feel uncomfortable, to not show up. And if they're willing to take on whatever repercussions or whatever penalties that, that, that go along with that, it's their choice. And I would expect that if the owners and you know the higher ups and the, the people that are really supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, because it's not an organization, it's not, you know, it, it's not something that lives in a building. It's it's actual real everyday life that we go through, that we're explaining that we want everyone to understand that we matter too. In any instance that they feel that their life or the value of someone else's life that mirrors them, that looks like them, the moment that they feel that something is unjust, that makes them uncomfortable, let's stop. And I think that we have another conversation. And I think that we have these gates of conversations each step of the way, because nothing's going to stop overnight. There's things that are happening every day. But if there's no action put to those things that are happening and those players feel uncomfortable, then it should stop and we should stop the world just like what happened yesterday in the beginning of today. And let's have a conversation about how we can be better. And if we get some chips slid over onto the other side of the table, we make a concession to come back. It's mm -hmm. not a concession to finish or complete the task. It's a, it's a concession to come back. And for me, I support those guys. And the moment that one player on one team feels uncomfortable, everyone should follow suit and support. And we should go through this same sort of practice again. And as many times as we need to go through this exercise, I think that we do that. And I'm, pr I'm proud of those guys. I'm proud of those guys for stepping up, but I'm also proud of them for saying, hey, if you guys make some concessions, we'll get out there and do what we love to do. We love to compete. These games in the bubble have been the best games I've seen uh, probably ever. I mean, other than, you know, the battles in the 80s when, you know, when you had the Pistons and the Boston and, you know, those sort of really, you know, competitive, you know, physical games. But 
this has been the best basketball that I've seen um, since since then. And back then, I was born in 79, so I'm watching, you know, film. I'm not watching things live. So now I'm watching things live, and I see the emotions, and I see the the intensity that the guys are playing with, that the guys have on the bench. I'm loving it, and I love the fact that this is a process that we have to go through. This is their escape for a lot of these guys, if not most, if not all. And so for them to be willing to put that at jeopardy is is actually a big sacrifice on their part to kind of get their point across. So like you said about the comments, you saw a lot of, oh, this is selfish, get out there and play. To me, it's it's a selfless move because they're they're willing to put, you know, something they love as much as almost anything at stake to to make a, to make an impact. You know, I think you see a lot of people with the response to this is vote. And I think that's really important. The one thing I would just say is is vote smartly. Everybody now, if you don't have NBA games to watch for the next couple of days, maybe use that time to to sort of read up on at least your, you know, elections at the local level or, you know, the, the bigger level, the national level and and be informed when you make those decisions. Yeah, and we'll say it's your choice. It's your choice to understand the information. It's your choice to understand the policies and the candidates that are there. It's, it's your choice to understand that process. No one is telling you to vote any way, w- which way to vote. What I'm saying is make sure that your voice is heard. Uh, make sure that your, your, your pen hits the paper. Make sure that your electronic tally uh, is, is accounted for. And you can, you can honestly say that you, you did your part. If you're not going out to vote because you don't feel that uh, your vote matters or this one vote uh, won't make a difference, then you know you have no say in, in, in the process. You have no, no cooler or, or barbershop talk. There's nothing that you can bring to the table because this is a very important time. Um, and I encourage, encourage everyone to get out there uh, and vote uh, and understand your process, understand the needs of, of you know, yourself, but also uh, your kids and their kids and kind of understanding the amount of time that it takes to, to change laws and to change systems and to change uh, regulations that it's not a lot of times in our lifetime. But I would encourage people to, to, to forecast out, to, to want to have a better life for their kids and their kids' kids, making sure that everyone is equal, making sure that everyone has the equal playing field uh, to, to live on. And that, that's really all I have to say about, uh, about, about that issue. I think that's incredibly well said. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see by next week sort of what's happened and, and hopefully there's been those concessions we talked about and uh, first, you know, first steps in, in some meaningful change. So uh, coming up after this little uh, ad break here, folks, we'll have the athletics Sam Bassini on to, to talk a little bit about the draft and, um, you know, just, just sort of where the, where the Wizards might be uh, moving forward. Did somebody say playoffs? The NBA, MLB, and NHL are in full swing, and our partners at Bet Online have you covered. Uh, me personally, I am not doing particularly well on my Denver Nuggets pick right now, but hopefully Jamal Murray and, and Nikola Jokic can get it together and, and win me a little money back. So take full advantage of sports being back and get in on the action with hundreds of odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. And there's always an online casino as well. It literally never closes. So Head to betonline.ag today and sign up to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Okay, everyone, welcome to this week's Believe in Wizards podcast. I'm Matt, he's Larry, and this week we are joined by the Athletics, Sam Vecini. Sam, thank you for joining us. Yeah, how's it going, guys? Yeah, it's, it's, it's going good to be here, Sam. Yeah, it's 
been a it's been a tough few days. We're recording this on Thursday, right after the Bucks decided to walk out on the NBA, which was um, a, a good sight to see. But nonetheless, yeah, we're uh, I think we're fighting through. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll kick it off, man. Sam, you, you're you know considered one of the best in the business. You know, just talk about how that comes about. I mean, that process. I mean, just just building a good reputation throughout uh, this process. Yeah, I think that. First and foremost, uh, it's appreciated that I put the work in. Uh, I think that oftentimes there are some people who tend to go with more of a stats-based approach to this and being able to kind of mold the stats with the backing in terms of tape, I think is essential. Uh, I've you know spent a long time now really trying to learn the intricacies of the way that the NBA works. I mean, uh, Look, Larry, you could probably tell me more about, uh, you know, what specific guys are supposed to be doing in terms of, you know, uh, covering the backside of a pick and roll. But like I can tell you when a when a backside guy is supposed to be tagging and when he's supposed to be staying at home. Right. Like I can uh, dive deep on that. And I think that a lot of guys uh, in my position struggle to be able to bring that to the table. Um and then on the other side of it, there's obviously the sourcing side of it. And I think that I've worked really hard over the years to become someone that NBA organizations can trust and someone that uh, isn't going to go like kind of blabbing about, you know, what a specific team looks like and what a team is looking at necessarily uh, and really tries to go about handling my business in a professional manner. Yeah, how much of that uh, your intel is sort of um, just based on longer standing relationships? Like, does does that make it tougher when there is turnover in a front office and you have to start from scratch and things like that? Yeah, you know, the intel process for me at least starts when these kids are in high school. So, uh, getting a chance to talk to some AAU coaches, getting a chance to talk to some high school coaches, and then getting a chance to talk to the college coaches that were around them as they're you know kind of in a new environment to them, you know, getting to really live on their own, maybe for the first time in some cases, or having real uh, accountability and maturity and how they respond to that, having to um, respond to moving up a level in terms of competition and really getting punched in the face, uh, right, for the first time and uh, really trying to figure out, hey, this is how I have to adjust to get better. This is how... um, I'm willing to work at adjusting to get better, learning all of those factors that I think is important. And then NBA teams are going to do and what NBA scouts are thinking in terms of uh, what guys they like versus don't like, you know, when there's turnover, it sucks for me more because I think another reason why people are willing to talk to me is that I try and take it from a very humanist approach. Uh, I don't really do transactional relationships like within the industry like you know i'm someone that always tries to ask like hey like how are your kids doing like i try to learn like uh you know assistant general managers kids names and try to learn uh you know different things because i genuinely like to think that i care about how people are doing like if i'm going to spend my time talking to you uh, i want it to be uh, because there's a relationship there, not just because I'm trying to mine you for information. And look, there are people who go about it a different way and uh, keep it like professional and keep it um, away from it. And, you know, I certainly do keep it professional, but uh, I mean that there are people who just are in this business to get uh, news and to report stuff. And that's totally cool as well, but uh, it's not really the way I go about it. 
Yeah, I like that. I mean, the, you know, these are people being involved in the draft process too. So, uh, you know, you, you got to sort of treat people that way. I mean, I think that would be sort of my my take on it. So it's good good to hear that too. Just out of curiosity for people, how how do you come up with a mock draft? How much of that is is Intel-based? How much of that is just your opinion or thoughts on what you think the team should do? Break that down for us a little. Yeah, sure. So uh, the mock draft early in the season is going to be more based in terms of where I have guys in terms of like a very wide range, right? And where I think team needs kind of present themselves, right? And how guys fit in specific schemes, you know, for a team like Portland, for instance, Portland runs like a drop coverage heavy scheme where they're going to be trying to find a center. Potentially it's going to be a bigger bodied center. You know, not to say that schemes can't change and coaches get fired all the time and there are certainly different philosophies, but I like to think that whenever teams talk about, hey, we're taking the guy that's highest on our board, they tend to mean they're taking the guy that they think is going to be most successful within what they do and the way that they operate within uh, the construct of their scheme and the way that they operate within the construct of who they have on the roster. So, you know, I, I tend to look at fit a lot. I tend to look at it from a perspective of what makes sense. A lot of times there are certainly smoke screens is you guys know, and certainly uh, a lot of different pieces of information that'll get thrown at you. You know, one team might tell me the Wizards like Onyeka Okongwu, right? Like, given that I put Onyeka there. Another team might tell me that they like uh, James Wiseman. Another team might tell me that they like uh, Anthony Edwards if they were able to move up into the top two. Kind of being able to parse through the information and try to cut through the bullshit and trying to cut through that and try and figure out, you know, where the truth is, that can be often difficult. And, you know, taking a common sense approach is often like the best way to go about uh, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these circumstances, I think. But uh, once you get into, you know, let's say in a normal draft year, maybe not necessarily this draft year, given that I don't think we still know when the draft is going to be, you know, in a normal draft year, once you get down to May and once you get, Uh, the full NBA draft list even, you can feel pretty good that teams are narrowed down on, you know, maybe a list of guys and you can feel pretty good about the fact that uh, the information you're getting is at least somewhat in the ballpark and that you can try and find a more specified range on where these guys are going to be taken. And and just another question on the, on the Intel part, are are you watching film on these guys per se or, or highlights or just games? What's your evaluation process of the players? Yeah, so, you know, LaMelo Ball, you know, I have synergy just like every other uh, NBA executive does. I've watched every minute that LaMelo Ball has played this year. I can tell you, like, the amount of times that he should have been tagging a pick and roll and got caught, like, wiping his shoes uh, instead of uh, deciding to tag that pick and roll. I can, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many ridiculous left-handed live dribble cross-corner kickout passes that he's made this year but I've watched every minute that he's played I've probably watched 20 games of Anthony Edwards or so because I think he's a very complicated evaluation someone like an Onyeka Kongwu though where I don't think the evaluation is as complicated I've probably watched eight to ten of his games and then tried to watch most of the possessions where he had the ball because you know someone like a Kongwu the natural comparison that people have brought up is Bam Adebayo and 
in Bam's case, you didn't really see this at Kentucky, but in high school, he was a guy that was like grabbing and going on the break and did have some of that latent ball handling ability that he's obviously matured into with the Miami Heat. But in Onyeka's case, we haven't really seen that yet. So I kind of wonder, is he going to be much more limited in terms of what he can do with the ball than a Bam Adebayo? Or is he someone that could grow into this because the background that you get on Onyeka Kongwu is absolutely exceptional. He's a great kid. So uh, trying to trying to parse through all of the tape that you watch versus the background versus um, you know what you've watched in the past, especially with a kid like, like Onyeka, where I'm out here in L.A. I mean, I've seen that kid since he was a freshman playing on the Chino Hills teams with like Lonzo and the Ball family. So uh, trying to you know, meld together all of those things, I think, can often be a challenge, but it's a really fun, invigorating challenge, and it's part of why I really like the draft process. For Onyeka, if you've seen eight to ten games, is that – a strategic eight to 10, like, Hey, here's a couple where he didn't look good box score wise. Here's a couple where he looked great. Here's him against better competition, that sort of thing. Mostly all against good competition, Mm -hmm. um, competition that one way, shape or form might have challenged him. Marquette runs a scheme where they set a lot of like double drag screens in transition with Marcus Howard and Marcus Howard is then like coming up and trying to let it fly from three. Right. So like, going back and seeing how Onyeka dealt with those kind of scramble situations, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how did he deal with the physicality that in Isaiah Stewart, you know, opposed him just because Isaiah Stewart is someone that, you know, is 250 pounds already. And uh, Onyeka Kongwu is six foot nine with a seven foot one wingspan and has great power, but is going to be relatively undersized for the center position in the NBA. So trying to see how he dealt against, real NBA quality size trying to figure out how he deals against um, just general good teams all around that have actual wing talent like in Arizona did this year with Josh Green Uh, you know I try to try to avoid situations that aren't necessarily translatable to what we see on the court just because the way that the NBA game has grown and developed and matured over uh, especially the last five years in terms of the way the game has changed in space. Uh, you know, there are a lot of college schemes that just aren't super translatable to what you're watching. Uh, so we've mentioned Anyeka Kongo a couple of times for, for anybody who isn't familiar. Um, uh, Sam, in your most recent mock draft, which everybody should go check out on The Athletic, um, you had Anyeka Kongo, freshman center from USC, going to the Wizards. What, what about that um, seemed to make sense to you? Is it is it fit? Is it stuff you've heard mostly? Is it a little bit of both? Yeah, so I have not been told anything specifically that connects Onyeka Kongwu to the Wizards. We're still early enough in the process to where mm-hmm. you're just not going to get that stuff from like the perspective of it being like the highest level of the organization being like, yeah, like we're we're you know, dead set on taking this guy, or even we're very, very interested in this guy. And obviously uh, the pandemic has really thrown that for a loop at this stage, just because uh, teams aren't able to have guys in for workouts at all. So in the case of Onyeka, the things that I like about the potential Wizards fit is A, they need a defensive minded center. They they just need one. Um, Not to say that Thomas Bryant and Mo Wagner aren't good players. I think they've firmly established themselves as NBA players, but they just aren't very good on the defensive end. Uh, 
you know, Mo Wagner isn't quite strong enough to be able to defensively rebound and doesn't move his feet quite well enough. Thomas Bryant, uh, as much as that dude is a worker and someone that uh, everyone that you talk to about him says will try as hard as he can to get his lateral quickness down, it's just a real battle for him whenever he gets put out on an island against a guard. So uh, having someone like an Onyeka Kongwu who can be uh, a legit starting potential center in the NBA as well as someone who could complement those guys really does fit. As well as the fact that, A, I have him at number six on my personal board, and I think that he's a very good player. And C, one thing that the Wizards organization has really valued over the course of Tommy Shepard's time in charge is just getting good fucking people. Right. Like, they they desperately want good people around. We've had enough knuckleheads over the years. Have. Yeah, they, they want good people. They want uh, guys who work at it. They want guys who aren't like assholes in the locker room. They just want to have the right kind of people around and build an organizational culture that is very positive. Uh, and Onyeka is someone that as soon as he stepped onto USC's campus last year, everyone just kind of raves about how – he is a great human being, but also the kind of guy that's, you know, he's no nonsense. Once he gets on the floor, like he's going to try and rip your heart out every time. And, you know, if someone's goofing around, you know, he's 19 years old now, was 18 when he first got to USC. And he was like, hey, man, like, let's get going. Like, we're on the court right now. We got to take this serious. So I think that all of those fits uh, really mesh with what the Wizards are trying to do specifically. We see anything happening draft night or whatever, you know, whatever draft night looks like as far, you know, with the Wizards, do we see uh, any, any huge uh, changes or any huge deals uh, going on? Do you see anything? I don't because I think that they, from everything I've been told, would rather see how, you know, John Wall returns next year and see how he fits with Bradley Beal and see if they can make a legit run at the playoffs as they have guys like Troy Brown and Rui and whoever they end up taking at number nine, kind of continuing to develop and move up uh, into the next stage of their career. So I, I don't know that I see like a massive deal out there, to be honest. I, I don't think that they're going to move Bradley Beal before the uh, draft. I, I would personally consider it just because uh, I have some concerns about what they're going to get on the market if they wait too long, but it doesn't seem like that's the way they're going to go. So no, I, I don't really see it uh, in regard to, you know, there being like a massive trade or anything like that. I think you just made our whole listener base pretty happy because uh, for the, for the most part the national media, every, every conversation is how some other team can get Bradley Beal for cents on the dollar. <laughs> so, um, you know, can, can Wiggins and the number two pick uh, pry Beal away and things like that. It just no, it drives everybody like, here nuts. Yeah. Like that deal isn't remotely close for Bradley Beal. It's just not even in the ballpark, in my opinion, like, you have two years of a genuine 25 to 30 point a night score, the number two overall pick in a draft that is frankly not very good at the top uh, is just never going to get that deal done. Like the uh, a Warriors deal starts with both that and the Minnesota pick and like other stuff for mm -hmm. it to even be in the ballpark. Um, you know, a team like New Orleans could probably put together like a pretty interesting package just because they have assets coming out of their ass right now but like you know that's what it's going to take it's going to take an obscene amount to prime out and i don't think that they're really interested in exploring it right now based off of everything that i know uh larry what do you what do you think about the fit wise from what you've heard or maybe seen about uh onyeka kongwu I, th I think that's spot on i mean from what we've talked about over the last few weeks 
Um, obviously, with the startup, we've had talking about that defensive presence and that rotation out, you know, from the three-point line into the front of the basket. Uh, so I see that as a, as a huge need. And again, the draft is about young players and potential and, and, and talent and, and what you can kind of project. Uh, but this league is a league of, of, you know, seasoned veterans with a mixture of, of young talent. Um, you know, and then you go back to talking about who that kid is that's coming in, you know, talk to his coaches and talk to his teammates. Because like you said, you know, at this point in time, you know, there's so many players out there. You got to look for good character guys uh, that are willing to work. Um, you know, and size is a huge is a huge advantage. Uh, with size that can move is a huge advantage yeah. in the league today. So, I think that that's a good a good name that's out there on the board, and I I think it definitely covers a need you know that that the Wizards have you know especially this year. I'd be interested to hear from you just because like kind of looking around the way the playoffs have gone, it feels like a lot of these teams that like have gone toward more of a drop coverage scheme with these like bigger immobile centers, you know, Portland has gotten annihilated by the Lakers offense, even though the Lakers offense couldn't shoot for the first couple games. Um, Denver has really struggled trying to deal with Nikola Jokic, although that might have as much to do with Michael Porter, not knowing where he is on defense right now. Um, it just feels like a lot of these drop coverage teams have really struggled so far. So like, I'd be interested to hear with hear where you think the league is going now and like what you think is successful in the playoffs. You know, it, it's that active big, you know, the Clippers are able to do it because of their size and their depth of, of you know, guarding multiple positions, but teams are going to get killed if they're going to drop that big guy down um, yep. at the restricted area. I mean, they've, it, it's been proven. It's been shown that the guards are too good to allow you know those guys to come down it's not even about a full head of steam it's just about uh, having a skill level of, of misdirection and it's really what's going on and the ability of the guys of how well they shoot the ball now i can't see drop coverage you know lasting you know past the bubble i mean if, if we go back <laughs> and look at the film if teams just look at their film i mean i was watching a boston game uh when they dropped uh you know horford and mb just you know in the middle of the lane and it was just like field day. And I'm just like, right. you know, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm a, I'm a Jason Tatum fan. So I'm like, you know, just keep going, <laughs> just keep going, just keep going because that, that, that is not a coverage that's going to uh, be sustainable. Um, you know, yeah. 14 for 82 games. Yeah. It's tough just because the Bucks had so much success with it this year with Brooke Lopez. Like he has that short area quickness to be able to like kind of step up and stop the floater, but also backtrack and be able to stay vertical at the rim. But I mean, I, I look at a team like Toronto and I'm like, they can just beat you so many different ways defensively just in terms of their versatility to where it's just like, I would rather have that defensively because it gives you a lot of different ways to match up with what other teams are doing versus yeah. what Milwaukee has, which was the number one defense in the NBA this year, but isn't versatile. And, you know, if you can figure out one way to beat them, you can beat them. And Milwaukee has so much length. I mean, even if they drop yeah. Lopez back, then you also have Giannis, you know, coming down from the top or you have Middleton coming in from the wing. So as an offensive player, there's always a, a defensive threat. The way, you know, Philadelphia was playing it, yeah. there was no, you know, there was no other defensive threat, you know, that was there. Based on what you guys are just talking about, I, I would be a proponent of going for a nice long defensive wing for the Wizards. Um, it just yeah. that seems that seems like what makes sense where the league is going. And you know, just for our fan base, every comment is like, we need a defensive rebounding shot blocking center. Like anything else than that sure. is stupid. Um, which we could use that too, but 
to your point, that that doesn't really work in the league unless you have the right guy and sort of the right scheme and personnel around them. I, I don't know who the wings are on the Wizards right now from a three and D kind of perspective that that really enable you to do that. Yeah, no, I, I don't know that they have them to be honest. Like, I, I really like Troy Brown. I thought he was awesome in the bubble. Like, it seemed like, and even late in the season this year, like it seemed like he'd kind of taken a leap, but. Is he like more of a sixth man because he needs the ball in his hands like a little bit more? Can he get better as a shooter maybe to where he can uh, really, you know, take that next step and then he can attack a closeout and then make that like cross corner kick. And then you get the team into all sorts of scramble situations. Like, can he be someone that can just attack a closeout and knock down like a little floater? I mean, Troy is really interesting to me. Like, I think he's, he's someone that needs the threat of the jump shot though, because he's not that like crazy athlete that's just going to, fucking blow by people right like Rui is the other one that's really interesting to me because Rui is just so comfortable in the half court or in the mid-range area in the half court and like I'm not opposed to the mid-range shot if you're someone who is doing it like off of a pull-up and who is creating that offense on their own because I think that's what's exceptionally difficult to guard it's kind of like Larry said when we were talking about drop coverage like that's how you break drop coverages now is by hitting that little mid-range pull-up jumper. You force the defender back, and then you stop and pop. Like, Rui, I don't think he's that guy, but if he can hit that mid-range shot at, like, 50%, it's not, like, a total disaster, but that's a really hard level to get to. I, I just don't know with Rui in terms of, like – I just don't know where he goes. Like, he needs to make some real adjustments in terms of the way that he plays as much as anything. He looked a little hesitant to even shoot the three. You know, the percentage was good in the yeah. bubble, but then you look at the attempts, and other than when the Bucks basically just dared him and kind of gave him 15 feet of room, I don't think he had more than two attempts in a game other than that one. Speaking of Rui, just out of general curiosity, where would someone like him have gone in this year's draft for comparison's sake? So I had Rui last year at – let me pull up my rankings while we've got it. I, I would venture I had him at like 19 or so on my board. I just figured that would level set for folks a little bit what the discrepancy is between this year's draft and, and last year's just, you know, to give them some. Idea. Yeah. No, I find it interesting because Rui is someone that, so I had Rui at 17 last year. So I thought it was a bit of a reach where the, where the wizards took him. Rui was someone last year that had a very, very, very wide range of opinions. When you talked to some executives, they thought he was a second round pick because of the way that his game fit at the NBA level. Uh, he's not really a shooter. He was not someone who was super comfortable defensively at Gonzaga. You know, Brandon Clark took on a lot of their tough assignments. Mm -hmm. uh, even someone like Zach Norvell uh, took on like tougher wing assignments for them uh, than Rui did. Even again, like when Killian Tilly was healthy, like Killian Tilly took on tougher assignments than Rui did as well. He's never been really a passer either. So there was some real concern in terms of like, okay, if this guy doesn't have a ball in his hands, what does he do? He's almost like a small ball center who can like step out and shoot like 15 footers and 18 footers, right? Which is like a weird setup for him, right? There were other teams who saw him as a pure wing and like a, you know, hybrid three, four guy who just had an incredible athletic advantage and mismatch potential on whoever he was going to be matched up with because the intersection of Rui's quickness, because while he's not like a crazy vertical athlete, I think he does have a really quick first step and he's really strong. Like, I think that's what like kind of goes underrated about him. Like that dude is very, very strong, especially for a college basketball player and someone who's like 20 years old, 21 years old. 
he's going to grow into being strong enough to even deal with some small ball center minutes, I think at some point, but you know, how, how does that all fit in an NBA court? Like, I feel like executives a lot of the time look for these archetypes that they can just slot into what they're doing and make it work. In the case of the wizards, the wizards didn't necessarily know what the future would hold for John Wall and really the only true building blocks they had were Bradley Beal and Troy Brown. So they could take this guy who's like kind of an amorphous position. I don't even know that I want to say like position list, but like gives you versatility at least. Yeah. Like kind of a different guy and and try to mold him and grow him into what uh, they feel like can be a very high potential guy. It's he's a he's a tricky one, man. Rui is one of the toughest evaluations across the NBA right now. I think. And, yeah, I, I'm I sorry, think shooting I, is going to be. I think shooting is going to be something very important for for Rui to yep. to to pick up because again he he's not as fast, but he does has a quick a first you know quick powerful step. So if you yep. can threaten with a jump shot, you can you can get to where you want to go for sure. Yeah, and the jumper's interesting in terms of like judging mechanics. Like it's a very flat jumper that he has just had so many reps with now at like the 15 to 18 foot range that he's just very comfortable and very confident taking it. I do worry about how that extends out though. Once you get to that three point line, like I think that's going to be tough for him. It might take some real time and energy and developmental time and adjustment time. Uh, He's in terms of answering your original question, I probably would have had him somewhere in the ballpark of – I probably would have had him ahead of, like, Precious Achua. Probably would have had him – I'd say somewhere in, like, the 14 to 17 range. So maybe just, like, slightly ahead of where I had him last year. Um, but, again, like, everyone was so across the board on him that it's really it's really kind of a tough question to answer because he was as polarizing as he was. Talking about LaMelo Ball. Yeah. Uh, what, what's your thoughts on what's your thoughts on him? I mean, what separates him from the group? Um, advantages, disadvantages? Talk to me. Yeah, he's my favorite in the class. Uh, I do have him at number one. Uh, I have him in his own tier at number one. I don't think he is like if you guys remember like Markel Fultz coming out. Like Markel was kind of a different player coming out than what he is now. Like after the shoulder injury and after whatever else happened with Markel. <laughs> I, I still am a little bit unclear to be frank. Um, yeah. Right. So like when you remember him coming out, like he was this very shifty, had that explosive first step, had a great pull up game from all three levels could finish the basket as well. Um, you know, it was someone who was very special at the point guard position. Uh, I, I would not necessarily have LaMelo even as high as I had Markel Fultz. Um, which means he's certainly a level below the past few years' prospects of like uh, Luka Doncic and DeAndre Ayton, both of whom I had like in a tier on their own that year. Um, Zion Williamson and John Morant, I certainly wouldn't have him as high as those guys. Um, Jason Tatum would be like, you know, basically in the ballpark, like right around where I had Tatum because I had Tatum at number two that year uh, behind Markel. So like so- somewhere in that range. And what I like about him is that He's a very different player from Lonzo, which is like the obvious point of comparison for a lot of people. Lonzo is someone that has a very high dribble and has like kind of stiff hips and doesn't necessarily, you know, break guys down off the bounce. He's more just this incredible uh, ball mover and someone who sees things happen like four steps before anyone else sees them happening on the court. Uh, LaMelo 
is more of your traditional ball dominant point guard. I've almost been comparing him to like, imagine a taller Rajon Rondo, someone who can really break down defenders off the bounce, can get into that second level of the defense without a problem because he has all sorts of crossovers. He has all sorts of shiftiness, the way that he can just like kind of flip his hips on the fly and step back, flip his hips on the fly and then just blow by you. That stuff's like kind of different to me. Um, and from there where his actual best skill is, is he's the best live dribble passer in this class. Uh, he's absolutely exceptional at it. You know, he can go left-hand cross-corner kickout. He can go left-hand, you know, just to that cross-wing, same-side kickouts with his right hand. You know, whatever pass you need him to throw, unbelievable pocket pass, has great touch on, lobs to the basket. Whatever you need him to throw, he can throw it. He's really just kind of a special passer, in my opinion. The questions are the jump shot, though. I mean, when people – first think of LaMelo Ball, I think that they think back to the highlights of him being like a 13-year-old that couldn't even like bring the ball like above his head. Like he was just like chucking, playing with his brothers on like the 17 and under AAU circuit and doing it from 35 feet. But that's not, I think because he's grown so quickly as much as he has, this is a guy that was five foot 10 as a uh, freshman, sophomore in high school and has kind of grown steadily up to where he's like between six, six and six foot seven. Now I think that his body mechanics have changed so quickly that like the jump shot hasn't quite caught up yet in terms of just figuring out, you know, what the trajectory of the ball is going to be entering the basket, you know, and off of his release, you know, uh, his frame is still very skinny and hasn't filled out yet because he's grown so quickly. So I have some faith in the jumper, but it's very inconsistent right now. And it's not there at all. He has touch, but like he just doesn't, uh, doesn't have that jumper yet. And then, uh, you know, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier in the conversation. His defense is abominable right now. <laughs> like, is that effort or, not, or ability? Oh, does not give a fuck defensively. Like, can't even uh, can't even begin to say how bad he is on defense. Like, eight times I caught him just like you know wiping his feet on the you know trying to tag a uh, before well, his responsibility should have been tagging a roller. Uh, you know, waiting to get the ball back. He's a constant gambler defensively, and he does show like interesting instincts to get into passing lanes and stuff. And like he is such an intuitive smart basketball player that there are some things that could be improved there. And there's like a base to build on, but it's effort right now. I mean, his effort was atrocious this year on defense. Yeah. I think that's part of, you know, being, you know, being humble. And I think that that's yeah. something that obviously the top picks have, as they come in and everybody's, you know, telling them how great they are. He's going to really have to assert himself, you know, on the defensive end, because that's been something yep that everybody's talked about as far as his effort on defense. So to make sure that he, um, you know, gets the confidence and, and his teammates begin to have his back, you know, once he makes it to the league, that's something that he's definitely going to have to, you know, spend some time on and definitely focus on because everybody in the league can score. <laughs> and, no you know, doubt. playing defense is what's going to mean. Even though guys aren't allowed to play defense, you're expected to rotate. And I think that that's the important right. part of the, of the process is the rotation. Right. Yeah. And it just wasn't there this year. I mean, there, there wasn't, to be frank, there was not a lot of accountability there for him necessarily, just because he played on the worst team in the league. The entire offense was catered to him. So they couldn't really ever take him out uh, or else the offense kind of fell off a cliff. So 
you know, and obviously the accountability was never there when he was younger, uh, just because of the scheme that they played at Chino Hills. And when his dad was the AAU coach, they just ran up and down and tried to force turnovers. Um, and then additionally, uh, you know, in Lithuania, it was just like also kind of a mess over there from anyone that you talk to. So yeah, they, weren't, uh, they weren't trying to win those games. So, I mean, that, that wasn't important to them. We're not trying to win those games. No. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting though. Like I, I didn't think Lonzo was an awesome defender at UCLA. Like I thought he was fine and he showed effort, but I certainly didn't think that he was what he has turned into uh, and what he turned into basically from day one with the Lakers. So you know, maybe it's as simple as LaMelo will turn it on once he gets to the NBA and, you know, it'll be a similar deal, but uh, we haven't seen it yet. And I think that that's cause for concern. Yeah. And when you, and when you can't shoot the ball, you quickly figure out what you need to do right. to make sure that you stay on the court. So I think that that's, you know, part of the learning <laughs> process as well, but just finding a way to stay on the court. I mean, and I, I credit anyone that's, that's smart enough to, you know, to, to figure that out. So I, I wish these guys nothing but success. Um, and just that that P word, man, that potential word, is, 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 <laughs> it, it's there. Right. And like this draft particularly, a lot of the players at the top are not very good yet. Like I, I don't think that a lot of the guys at the top are going to step in and be immediate impact players at the NBA level. Anthony Edwards shot 29% from three this year because his shot selection was just like a total nightmare. Uh, Obi Toppin's probably a little bit more ready to come in than most other guys but like he's a little bit older and his defense is not great yet James Wiseman hasn't played high level basketball really yet outside of camps and like camps aren't high level high leverage situations at the very least um Tyrese Halliburton's very skinny and Yeka Kongwu doesn't have like a crazy amount of ball skill or shooting ability like a lot of these guys at the top a lot of these younger guys are real projects and are going to take time but they have real substantial upside. Like it's hard to find someone like Anthony Edwards who has that level of explosiveness and power and quickness who also is comfortable getting to like a step back jumper with all sorts of crazy fluidity, like guys that can do that at 19, like it's, it's very few and far between. I mean, Bradley Beal, when he was at Florida, I think he shot like 33% from three, like, and now he's turned into one of the five or six best shooters in the NBA, probably. So, uh, you know, you're often betting on mechanics. You're often betting on athleticism. You're betting on guys being willing to improve at the end of the day. You hear a lot of that this maybe isn't a top-heavy draft, but it's pretty deep in the sense that yeah. you could get a good role player in the second round. So in your mock, you had um, Xavier Tillman from Michigan State, kind of a small ballish center another supposedly really good character guy. What do you like about that fit? And any other guys you could see in that range that, that might make sense for them? I, I just love Xavier Tillman, like the person, uh, first and foremost. Like any NBA team that I've talked to that has brought up Tillman to me and brought up like the interview process has been like, this guy is just like in a different life experience than like a different world than where everyone else we talk to is because – he already has a couple of kids. He's married. He like lives in like an on-campus or lived in an on-campus apartment, mm -hmm. like with his wife and kids and like often would like leave just to go like have dinner with them. Like he'd take team meal and be like, Hey coach, like I've, you know, I'm going to go have dinner with my wife and kids right now. So there's just a real level of maturity there that 
19 and 20 year olds don't have, right? Like I was a moron when I was 19 and 20. I'm sure that like 90% of people are. So the fact that he's as mature as he is, I think is a testament to him. I thought he was one of the 10 best defensive players in college basketball this season. The way that he's able to uh, hold his own position on the block, rebound at a high level defensively, slide his feet in pick and roll coverage. Uh, you know, Michigan State played more of a, you know, a show and then recover kind of scheme versus him switching out onto guys and being caught on an island. But he certainly performed the scheme exceptionally well, didn't have a problem recovering in terms of lateral quickness. Offensively, I think he's the best screen setter in this draft as well. Uh, the partnership between him and Cassius Winston was exceptional. Part of it's having a guard that is as – uh, reactive to the way that you play screens uh, as Cassius was, but part of it was having a screener who just like intuitively knew when to time uh, how to flip a screen at the right time, right? Or, you know, how to just do like one of those little ass out screens to get like just in the way of someone just a little bit. Uh, from there, he's an exceptional passer out of short rolls. He can finish at the basket. The jump shot's developing. He shot like 30% from three this year, but uh, I think it has some potential, uh, and he's such a good worker that I think he's someone that will continue to grow. So kind of kind of the guy that the Wizards have had success with uh, and have tried to prioritize over the course of the last couple of years, Tommy Shepard in, uh, in charge. You mentioned anyone else. They're down at like 39. Robert 37. Woodard's another 37. Yeah. Um, Robert Woodard's another great kid, you know, six foot seven, seven foot one wingspan wing, um, you know, kind of a similar body type to Rui Achimura, but a uh, bit more of a shooter, straight line driver, whereas Rui was more of like an offensive creator, Gonzaga, who operated in the mid range. Uh, you know, Woodard is a good defender. Uh, again, elite level character kid, very intelligent. Um, you know, trying to think who else like a paul reed or somebody that's long and active defensively do you see that at all i I get it i get why people are excited with paul reed uh and and i don't mean this to be disparaging necessarily when i say it his numbers overrate what his defensive impact is you look at him on a possession by possession basis he's chasing constantly like it, it was it's kind of a similar deal to what Nerlens Noel did at Kentucky and everyone got very excited about Nerlens Noel and you know he averaged like two and a half blocks and two and a half steals per game at Kentucky and it was the same deal with Paul Reed I think he was up over two and a half blocks and two steals a game but it, it's just constantly taking yourself out of position and going to chase those you know big impact plays that uh, it, it left a lot of the Big East coaches that I talked to wanting with Paul Reed uh, whenever they watched him like they they weren't worried about him they felt like they could get him out of position relatively easily but you know like you said athletic you know six foot ten with a seven foot two ish wingspan um, you know has the uh, tools to become something of a very real uh, defensive presence just because it's hard to find guys that can switch like that and have that kind of athleticism but uh, it's going to be incumbent upon him to really hone in on the intricacies of where he's supposed to be versus uh, kind of freelancing a little bit which is what he did at DePaul this year. Uh, Larry for you when you were going through this process did did they watch tape with you during interviews and stuff and try to see how you learn the game I mean I feel like that would be a good way to kind of get a sense if somebody can fit your scheme and and not sort of chase blocks and stuff like that no no I I think that it was all done before I got there as far as to what 
I could bring to the table or how I could help support what they're doing. Like I said, they're, they're going to try to mold you into what, you know, they need. They see a little bit of potential. They see a little bit of a pro style game. Then they want to fit you into exactly what they're doing. And the scouting departments, the evaluations, the evaluators, I mean, they're very important. I mean, they're very important. That's why I asked the question about what's the evaluation process? Is it highlights? Is it, you know, games? You know, is it real, you know, game breakdown? So I think that that's part of, you know, the evaluation process and the draft process is to make sure that the people that are scouting understand who the player is. And now there's just so much information out there on how to, you know, just collect so much information on, on players and programs that if everyone is doing their job, you can get a, a good sense of, of who the player is. And then from that point on, it's about the draft process and the numbers of where people fall in that to make sure that people or teams are, are not just taking people or players just because, you know, they're there, right? If it's not the right fit. So for me, I think when I was going into Philadelphia or that process, I fit on paper what this, you know, what the team needed. They needed another guy with length uh, that can handle the basketball, that can facilitate uh, and allow Allen to, you know, do his thing and score the basketball. Well, I kind of wanted to score the basketball too. <laughs> so it was like, you know, it, it was kind of, okay, you can do this, you know, after you do this. So I think it, for me, it was a process of understanding. And like I said, it's just making sure that the evaluators are really locked in on, on who players are, what the expectation are, or expectation is for the team. And what the expectation is for the player, frankly, as well. Uh, you know, having guys come in that have an outsized expectation of what they're going to be or who they're going to be. I mean, that can just create as many problems as, you know, kind of the antithesis as well. So, yeah, no, I, that's that's a really great, uh, a great way to put it, Larry. The one I always stands out to me is I remember hearing during the, the draft process that Andre Drummond compared himself to teams as like wanting to be a Kevin Durant type in the league. And, sure. and it's like, you, you got to like make sure that the guy gets that you're trying to plug him into the role. So I think that what you guys both just said makes a lot of sense. Um, just a couple quick hitters for you, Sam, then we'll not take up your whole afternoon. Um, the couple names that get rotated around here a lot uh, are sort of the four lottery-ish wing guys, Isaac Okoro, Devin Vassell, Aaron Nesmith, and Sadiq Bey. Any of those guys that sort of make more sense to you for Washington than the others or kind of all in the same general range? Yeah. Uh, kind or of Patrick Williams same... too, I guess. Makes sense. Yeah, I was going to bring up Pat. I'm glad that you did. Um, yeah. All kind of in the same general range for me. I have a Coro at 10, Vassell 11, Bay 12, Naismith, uh, I think 15, and Pat Williams 14. Uh, kind of all really in the same boat there. Now, uh, I think a Coro has a chance to be gone before the Wizards pick, but I would venture that, you know, the Wizards will be the start of the wing range uh, if they decide to go that route, where you're going to see a flurry of them in all likelihood come off the board, just kind of looking at the teams that are in that range. So from, you know, nine to let's say, let's say 18, uh, you've got the wizards who could theoretically use one. You've got Phoenix who could 
use one. You've got uh, Orlando, who just needs more perimeter talent, uh, especially with Von Fournier likely entering free agency this year. Portland could use another wing. Uh, Boston just loves drafting wings. Uh, Sacramento uh, is a team that certainly needs a wing. New Orleans certainly needs a wing. Minnesota could use a wing. Dallas needs a wing. It, it's just like in that 9 to 18 range, uh, you're going to see a ton of them come off the board. And I think that the Wizards are lucky that they're going to be at number 9 and have potentially the uh, pick if they so desire to use that route. Okoro is my favorite, if only because I do think his upside as a creator is the highest. and Teams are obviously looking for guys who could potentially handle the ball as much as anything. Okoro also has some pretty real holes in his game that worry me. Uh, his jump shot is not great. His handle is a bit more rudimentary than what you would like. Like he's a good straight line driver, but is someone who's not going to like break down a guy with like between the legs dribble into a left or right crossover and then blow by. Definitely a good and willing passer, an elite level defender for a kid that played almost all of his college season at 18 years old this year. He has great instincts, great on-ball tendencies, can switch essentially from one to four because he's so strong. So he's someone that I like. I also like Devin Vassell. Vassell is more of your prototypical 3 and D wing. Um, guy who's going to knock down shots off the catch and play really high-level team defense while also being great at contesting shots on the ball. Uh, What worries me is I don't really see him as someone who's going to be much of an on-ball threat. The length of time it takes him to release his jumper off of pull-ups, he has a very elongated shooting motion. I think that those windows are just going to kind of close down pretty substantially unless he makes real strides in terms of quickening his jumper release. Uh, Sadiq Bay is a bit bigger. He's six foot eight with a seven foot wingspan, super high level shooter off the catch in spot up situations. Not really a guy that you're going to like run off of a ton of screens or anything, but he is a very good passer. He can attack a closeout and hit like a cross wing kick out if it's there. Uh, defensively very switchable as well. You know, against Kansas this year, he took on a Devon Dotson assignment who was a second team all American point guard. Uh, just as often as he took on, you know, fours in the college level that could, you know, theoretically have to deal with him inside and try to post him up and everything. So uh, a real role player, but not someone who has like a ton of shooting versatility. You're more going to spot him up and just have him knock down shots as opposed to like run them off of actions. Aaron Naismith is the guy that you're going to run off of crazy actions played for Jerry Stackhouse this year. Uh, someone that really was Excellent coming off of all sorts of baseline screens, pin down screens. Vanderbilt ran some like crazy actions where like they would run him off of a pin down and then like with the guy who set the initial baseline screen, he'd come up and set like this backside flare and Naismith was awesome at getting his feet set and just firing from distance and knocking down those shots with ease. Uh, I think that his defense is probably a little bit worse than all of those other guys. Uh, he's a little bit slow-footed, but he's six foot six with a 6'10 wingspan, has the frame to do it. And then Williams is Williams is more of a four than these guys are threes. Uh, he's like a less long OG Ananobi. Like when Ananobi came in, like he was just this like enormous human being, right? Like six foot eight, seven foot two wingspan, uh, 230 pounds and could just deal with whatever assignment he needed to. 
Pat Williams is not necessarily that long. He has like a 6'11 wingspan, but he's even stronger, I think, than uh, what Ananobi was when he was 18 years old. Uh, he's going to grow grow into his frame and just be like absolutely enormous, I think. And uh, when he was younger, he showed a lot of like point forward tendencies. He could grab and go and do some different stuff on the break and pass and uh, all kind of sorts of different different little things that he could showcase that he didn't get a chance to showcase at Florida State because, you know, Leonard Hamilton's scheme is very uh, rigid and regimented and he's had an incredible amount of success uh, kind of spreading the ball around and, uh, you know, spreading the wealth. So uh, Pat Williams is going to have to shoot it. He has kind of an inconsistent release point right now to where sometimes it's a moon ball, sometimes it's a little bit of a line drive, but uh, showcases enough touch to where I think he'll get there and he probably has – Again, we're going to say that word, Larry. It's going to be potential. Uh, he has maybe a little bit more potential in terms of frame than some of the other guys do and in terms of athleticism. But, you know, he, he's someone that very much intrigues me nonetheless. Larry, anybody from that group that sounds most appealing to you? Uh, Oroku. I mean, we've, you know, being in the, the youth space, you know, I've seen him uh, a lot uh, as a as an EYBL player. And, and that's why I was wondering, you know, saying with you is, is obviously I'm sure you've watched these guys uh, compete at a number of different levels. And just are you getting the sense of, of who they are through the EYBL competition or are you getting a, a better sense through the college season or the college game? you know, as far as an evaluation tool of what the action, you know, what the individual player can actually do, where is the best, um, where's the best eval coming from? Is it the EYBL or is it the actual college game? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I tend to take it all uh, within the construct of in an entire picture, right? Uh, I like to see guys at least by the time that they're 16, hopefully, especially like if I can get them on tape, like watching full games on synergy, like that's great. If I can see them in person, even better. Like I want to be able to kind of follow their developmental trajectory in order to see where they have grown from the time that they were 16 to the time that they're 19, 20 and entering the draft. Right. Because, you know, guys that have, in my opinion, been more, uh, more busts, let's say at the top, been a little bit less successful, they can sometimes be the guys that, you know, maybe topped out a little bit earlier in terms of their developmental timeline. Like people will bring up to me, oh, Obi Toppin is 22 years old already. Like he doesn't have much upside left. And I'm like, this guy has never not gotten better. Like every year from the time that he's been 17 years old, he's gotten better every single year and added something every single time and every single step of the way. So why would I think that his upside is a little bit lower uh, at that stage? Someone like a Coro, it's interesting because when I saw him at, you know, at lower levels, played with Sharif Cooper, which was, you know, Sharif dominated the ball a lot more, was more uh, the true point general, and a Coro was more of a transition threat offensively. What I think I didn't realize coming into Auburn was how comfortable it was as a passer and is like a half court drive and playmake guy. Uh, he showcased that really, really well this year at Auburn. Uh, I thought that, you know, there is some real upside due to his body control and the power that he plays with. 
I hesitate to compare anyone to Jimmy Butler because like part of what makes Jimmy Butler is just like the psychotic competitiveness. Right. And I mean that like in the best possible way, like, but in terms of the frame and in terms of the way that his body moves, I think that there are some similarities there with Isaac Okoro and Jimmy Butler. Now, Jimmy also, even though he's shooting 24% from three in the bubble, got to the point where he was a very comfortable pull-up shooter as well. Like, it's, you know, like, again, like, I, I hesitate to bring up that name, but, like, whenever I watch their body mechanics, I see similarities there. And I hope, because everyone that, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this just kind of being around the youth circuit, everyone I've talked to about a Coral says, like, elite-level character kid, elite-level worker, like you kind of hope that he's going to get to whatever ceiling he can. Uh, it's just whether or not, in my opinion, he has the touch to get there as a shooter because uh, the jump shot just changes every single time he takes it off the catch. He has this very exaggerated ball dip uh, off the catch that actually kind of uh, works itself out whenever he's taking pull-ups. Like he's a little bit better off the pull-up than I think he is off the catch just because that ball's already starting down there and it kind of naturally brings his shot into more rhythm. Uh, off of pull-ups versus off the catch. But, um, yeah, Coro is going to be an interesting one because the jump shot really does need to come along or else he, he could just be like a rotation guy if the jumper doesn't come along, and that would suck. Yeah, but I think that that's a good comparison uh, just as far as, like, the mechanics, like you said, to, to a Jimmy yeah. Butler. And he's a guy that's going to work. You know, being a, a worker bee uh, is, has been his advantage as well. So I think that he can continue that. Um, but all these guys, obviously, as you get older, you can you shoot the basketball better, uh, but you obviously have to yeah. develop that skill. Yeah, you're, you're just going to rep yeah. out so many shots at the NBA level. Yeah. Like, I would imagine that, like, when you left St. Louis, like, just having less on your plate, you know, in terms yeah. of, you know, just focusing on basketball, like, it, it really just allows for a lot of time in terms yeah. of repping out that jumper and repping out, like, the little bit and getting with specific trainers that, like, you know – you pick your coaches in college, but then you're kind of stuck with your coaches in college. Like, you know, you get to pick a real trainer at the NBA level. And when you're entering the NBA level, and if you don't connect with that guy, you can move on to another one that maybe you connect with better in terms of fixing your jumper. So it's all, you know, it's all a piece of the puzzle for sure. Sam, thank you so much for doing this. This was great. I think this is the the deep dive everybody in DC was hoping for sort of post lottery (laughs) and well-timed. Thank you for doing it. Tell everybody where they can check you out. I will just say, like, I don't want to distract from what's happening. You know, let's let's at least mention, like, please, like, call the Kenosha Police Department and please call, you know, the Wisconsin Attorney General to ask for justice for what happened to Jacob Blake. Like, uh, I think that, you know, what many of the players are walking out for is real and it's genuine. I want to make sure that the focus does stay there on some level. You know, we talk about basketball and that's great. But, um you know, and I love talking about basketball. I'm really glad that we did this today because it was a great, you know, hour long diversion for me. But, you know, nonetheless, I do think that, you know, at least taking a minute here to, you know, refocus on what's important is good. Uh, go to The Athletic, uh, you know, Sam underscore Vicini. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, Vicini on Instagram. Um, trying to think. Game Theory Podcast. Please go listen to the podcast as well. That'd be great. Yeah. And no, thank you guys for having me. I mean, like I felt like I learned just from talking to, Larry about his experiences and learned, you know, a lot of different stuff about the wizards just from you know, talking to, you know, talking it over with you, Matt, in terms of where uh, they are. So uh, I'm really glad. I'm really glad we did this. It was great. Yeah. Uh, pleasure's all ours. And we'd love to have you back closer to the draft whenever that may be. <laughs> Maybe we're in 2021 by then, but 
be good. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds great. Happy to do it. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done